Thank you for tuning in to CIO Speaks with host Steve Ginsberg. If you enjoy this episode, please check out the other episodes in this series and go to gigaohm.com to find more of Steve's research and insights. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Steve Ginsberg, your host, and my guest today is Colin Corbett. Colin has been a leader in internet engineering with principal roles at PayPal, eBay, YouTube, Google, Dropbox, Netflix, Twitch, and others. Colin, thanks for being on the show today. You've helped build key infrastructure for these powerful web scale companies. Any stories you'd like to share? Thank you very much for having me, Steve. Uh, yeah, I've got a quite a run into, you know, quite a few issues over the, I guess, what, of 25 years of uh, of doing this. And so, yeah, I've got a got got a few good uh, a few good anecdotes here, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, they'll help. Uh, some of the folks listening. Well, thanks, thanks, Colin. You know, I've always enjoyed speaking with you, and uh, I know a, a lot of your work began at PayPal. Maybe you want to start there. Definitely. So, um, yeah, many years ago at PayPal, um, we used to spend a lot of time bringing up uh, infrastructure on site. Um, spent a lot of, you know, a lot of long days at the colo. Um, but when we were doing some of our first brings ups, uh, we also tried using an integrated for portion of our, of our server builds. And so after weeks of doing some of our on-site infrastructure that we were doing, the, the integrator showed up and then they, uh, they, bought their racks, uh, they bought their racks in, they were fully assembled, fully testing, and they were up and running within an afternoon, whereas I'd kind of been sitting there, you know, tracing and running cables and everything else on the floor. Um, so one of the things I really became a quick believer in was, uh, was things like pre-assembled racks and pre-integrated infrastructure. And that what that turned into was it would allow for a ton up of a whole pop eventually in less than a week as opposed to a month of time or you know sending a large group of people out to go and do a deployment you can now do a a decent sized deployment with a you know a much smaller crew and have them back at the office uh, in a much shorter amount of time and when you say that uh, what would you have the integrator integrate what 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 gets pre-built versus what you do on site so usually it's uh, everything at the rack level. So it would be things like pre-cabling. Uh, so it would be slotting the servers, burning in the servers, running um, switches, testing the switches. Um, and if you're and if you do it really well, you can even say, here's all the cables that will go from this rack to the to the next rack over or to back to the core, and they can either ship that as a separate harness or they can have it spooled and pre-plugged into that one rack and then you just basically unfurl it and run it off to the core. Or if you have a distribution frame in the bottom of the rack or I should say either above the rack or below the rack, you can have that all there ready to uh, to just go and deploy. So, and then you're really rolling in kind of fully built racks at that point. Very much so, yes. And it's, uh, and done well, especially now with things like ZTP and that, you can be up and running in a couple of hours if it's going into an existing infrastructure or if you have to deploy actual networking gear that's also fully deployed with racks of servers, you can be up and running in a couple of days. Can you explain ZTP for the audience? Sure, ZTP is the idea of uh, zero touch provisioning. So you connect your networking devices and they go out and they start DHCPing and they'll pull down config from a, a centralized configuration server and start uh, basically be online without uh, any uh, 
any interaction. So they'll actually come up and be on the network and upgrade themselves and be ready to go. So was that a principle that you then carried to the other roles that you had? Oh, uh, very much so. So with um, when we when I moved on to uh, moved on to YouTube, um, we ended up doing a lot of uh, we end up with everything being pre-integrated and just having all of our cabinets show up uh, fully assembled and ready to go, uh, including um, at that time all the server racks would show up, and so we'd we would. We didn't do full integration for the network racks. We would actually go ahead and uh, pre-install those, but we would leave them pre-wired for just adding more video and storage and web racks later. But it got to the point that we would just, and this was the part where we, which was really nice, was that we could just add video racks. We'd have the cable sitting above them, and we could just have the racks placed. We could have the cables were clearly marked, and the racks were clearly marked as to which position they'd go into, and the racks would just roll in there, you'd connect the cabling in, and they would just come up and online, which was which was great. It wasn't true ZTP at the time because ZTP wasn't around. Right. But what was great was we'd be able to get to serial, we'd be able to configure everything, and then, yeah, uh, get everything well, nice and running um, without too much. Let effort. me ask a little bit. So, uh, so with YouTube, um, you know, our audience may or may not be aware that YouTube was brought up before it was part of Google, and then 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 Google bought uh, YouTube, acquired it at a certain point. And you were in, uh, were you in on day one at YouTube? I know you were in very early in the game when it was when it was scaling. And then then the real question is, you know, tell me a little bit about that scaling. Sure. So um, so YouTube originally started in managed hosting, um, using a couple of uh, managed hosting providers, and then I was uh, I joined right as they decided to go and do. Uh, bring up uh, data center and move basically move out of the out of the managed hosting stuff. So that was a uh, that was kind of uh, wild and crazy. We ended up with a lot more traffic than anyone had really ever seen, and so we ended up basically having to scale a network at at rates people had never really seen before. So and we went into a lot of really interesting things. Um, so we picked a lot of data centers because. You know, yes, because they had space, yes, because they had power, but also because they had really good network connectivity. Um, but sometimes the places that have really great connectivity are not necessarily recently built data centers. They've either evolved from being old telco hotels, et cetera. So in one case, we actually had a rack that showed up and it, uh, because of the way you had to load it in, you ended up loading it in on the street. So we actually had a rack fall off the back of a truck, um, which was kind of a, a hamper to our scalability there, which, wow. which was kind of a bit of a mess. Um, but as one of the cool results out of that was our integrator ended up fixing, uh, we ended up working with our integrator to get not just a replacement rack, but also having them also pre-stage and pre-hold additional racks of all types so that we could actually have capacity ready whenever we needed. We had extra racks of web and DB and storage ready on a moment's notice to go. Um, and that was fun, but also we ended up having a very steady uh, capacity planning cadence where we'd say, I need X racks of video, Y racks of web, and Z racks of DB, and they would always show up at a steady state. And we would we would adjust it from time to time, but we would always have it, you know, capacity that we could always grow into, which was, 
which was a lot of fun because it's there's there were definitely times where we were in the beginning where we were really short on capacity um there were actually i remember one night we had a a rack arrive on a friday night with the understanding that if the rack wasn't online by midday saturday the site would probably go down and not be able to keep up so we were definitely there were a lot of uh in the beginning there were a lot of crazy kind of uh firefighting but we very quickly got got out of that with a uh, with good capacity planning yeah, we work, we work very similarly at Pandora, uh, even during parallel times, once we get to like kind of 2007 mm-hmm. uh, timeframe where I think YouTube always felt a little, you were always a little bit ahead of us, uh, both certainly in how much traffic uh, that was being delivered. And then uh, then also, I think because of that, you'd kind of, kind of gotten into it a little bit, uh, a little bit ahead. But similarly, we would we would look at the graphs on a Thursday and and realize sometimes we would actually have to buy servers get them built, get them sourced, get them in, populated, up online, in monitoring, you know, within a week or less time sometimes to keep the service running. Exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a wild time and it was a fun time at the same time. So you built uh, YouTube and uh, again, at the time, it was the, it was the site on the internet pushing the most traffic. So kind of the way people might think of both, uh, both Google, YouTube and Netflix today or Twitch. Uh, some of these these really kind of uh, Bill Norton refers to them as hyper giants, uh, and you start locating in network wars and that kind of thing. Um, when YouTube was acquired by uh, Google, did that fundamentally change the business, or was it basically maintained in kind of the same way? Um, so when Google acquired us, what was interesting is um, YouTube had more traffic than Google. So in most acquisitions, usually it's the the parent company comes in and says, okay, we want you to move onto our network. Well, we had more capacity and we had more egress. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a quick migration. We ended up, uh, YouTube ended up still uh, expanding post Google acquisition for about another year and a half before everything kind of moved underneath the, uh, the Google umbrella and Google ended up rolling out what is now their GGC platform to, to kind of help offload and, uh, and move that infrastructure under. Um, but yeah, even in the beginning, YouTube's, for instance, YouTube's a lot of, a lot of their data center expansions were because there was no more capacity from the, the network vendors in those markets. So we basically took out all the free capacity for about, um, I think in, eventually in like four or five markets, we still kept expanding across the U.S., um, and then it, and then we were acquired by Google, and that kind of helped us get a lot more peering relationships and other things too, which which kind of helped defer some of that too. Sure. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, peering for the for the enterprise audience? Um, sure. So, so peering is the idea of basically inter interconnecting uh, network to network and exchanging exchanging traffic, ideally in a what is called a a settlement-free interconnect, which is I will send you my traffic for free and you'll send me your traffic for free and we'll try to do it at beneficial locations across the U.S. Uh, And by doing that, um, we both will not pay the transit provider. So usually when you pay a transit provider, I will pay for whichever way is more expensive, either my traffic in or my traffic out. A content network was much more outbound heavy and an eyeball network being inbound would pay for a lot of the inbound. And 
the cost of transit over year over year has has continued to go down. But about the time when YouTube was there, it was about between ten and sixteen dollars a meg. But I do remember at other places paying three hundred dollars a meg. But even then, when you're talking about sending a you know a gigabit, that's a thousand megabits times ten dollars. That's that's ten thousand dollars a month. So the idea of interconnecting with a, a one you know with either a one gig or a ten gig made a lot of sense because you would reduce cost on both sides uh, that you didn't end up sending to the transit provider, which was very helpful for reducing your bill. Right. It costs across an entire program, hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars could be saved on transit. Absolutely. Where did you go after that? So after that, I ended up uh, leaving YouTube and uh, we did a, did a bit of work at, a, at Google where I helped do, uh, you know, helped to find a few standards and make things cookie cutter. But then I kind of wanted to go back into startups and I ended up going to, uh, going to Dropbox and uh, building infrastructure for them there. And uh, that, was, that was pretty interesting. And what was that like? So, so Dropbox, uh, I would think most people will be familiar with it. Uh, and certainly, you know, one of the first of the uh, online storage plays uh, that really grew up and has continued to succeed. Very much so. So that one was a bit different. Um, we, they, they were, you know, like YouTube, they were very much heavily uh, in managed, but not managed hosting at that time. That was actually the cloud when AWS. But the idea was uh, to help them build infrastructure to come out of the cloud. And uh, in this case, instead of doing a lot of small remote pops, uh, you know, and just crazy nonstop building like it was at YouTube, this was a few edge pops, but also a uh, large wholesale facilities. And in this case, it was, uh, for me, that kind of, my role changed from being a lot of network and data center to being a lot of still doing a good amount of network, but having to understand a lot of the the wholesale side of what a wholesale data center looks like. And in our case, we ended up making a couple of bad decisions and having to educate our wholesale data center provider about how to operate a wholesale data center. And so in your view, uh, what things would you expect to be different at a wholesale uh, data center than at what we would refer to as the retail data centers? So at a wholesale data center, the, the idea is the, the size is more. So usually a, a retail data center is good for somewhere between zero to, to about 250 KW, about up to 25 racks. But at a wholesale data center, that's generally anywhere from about maybe about a quarter of a megawatt, 250 KW, but I've seen deployments all the way up to, to about six megawatts. And, but there, but instead of the retail where you pay a, a fixed price for an actual power circuit, you're in the wholesale, you're paying the actual power draw and either a direct pass through for the PUE or a, a fixed uplift for PUE. You also have a lot more control about how your room's laid out, about how your power is distributed. So whether you want something like a, like a Starline busway or certain types of power whips or things like that. Um, you also end up in a, a different kind of lease. So whereas in a retail, you're basically paying like a one, two or three year lease with a, with a wholesale, you're paying for like a, usually something on the order of like a five to seven year lease with a two to three uh, potential re-ups kind of thing. So it, 
you can be in there for a long time if you if you wanted to. Yeah, and just to add, uh, PUE is really a, a shared cost of the costs of the data center. It's kind of a pass through of what uh, what the facility costs in general are uh, are kind of how those are being built up and then being distributed based on kind of how much of the data center you're renting out. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you said you said there were a few lessons to be learned there in terms of making sure that you get the service uh, that you're that you're paying for. And uh, later, I want to talk a little bit more about vendor management. But any kind of quick takeaways specifically from that about kind of how to deal with wholesale uh, data centers? So, so for me, my what a, one of the things I really learned was um, it's really a lot about the contracts. So one of the the, mo the most Important people you I suggest you find is you find a realtor a a a lawyer who understands real estate with um, data centers as part of it. So things like um, so I guess I'll start with the first thing I would always do is I start now by I write a very detailed RFP um, and then at the very you know, and you'll get the responses from the vendors and you'll ask very detailed questions in there. But you always make sure that your lawyer says, that's very nice. All the responses you've put in this RFP are actually going to be binding in the contract. So I'll, I'll give you a couple, of, uh, a couple of examples. So if one of the questions I ask in my RFP are, I say, hey, I'd like to bring racks into my data center. I plan for them to make it all the way from the loading dock without being tipped or tilted. And I expect that I can get them from the loading dock to my cage within less than an hour. And you know, usually in the in the RFP they'll say, "Yep, we guarantee that." And it then becomes, "Okay, but can you guarantee that for the life of this contract? If this is a seven-year contract, I expect that to to be true the whole time, whether you block off an, a." block off a corridor or whether your freight elevator fails or something, we still need to be able to actually get my equipment in and my equipment out should, should that ever happen. So I've definitely had cases where, um, like I've had buildings where they've shut down the freight elevator for five months and you couldn't get equipment in or out or you could only through the side elevator, but then it wasn't rated for the same amount of weight or it wasn't rated for the same amount of clearance. Um, and so you kind of have to refer back to the contract for something like that. Um, but also overall, one of the interesting things about the contract is the contract is everything that the data center vendor is really obligated to do to you. And if you look at it as, you know, in, in a negative view as this is really all that they were obligated to do. So if it does not say in the contract something like there will be 24 by seven technicians, even if they say that in the RFP, the vendor will try to go and pull that out unless it actually says this binds back to the RFP. And in the, you know, if you, as a good nitty gritty example, I've seen data centers where they say, yes, we have coffee, but then you show up there, but they don't provide coffee cups or straws or <laughs> you know, or stores, it's just kind of like the, well, we're obligated to just give you coffee kind of thing. Yeah, this is a great point in general, too. I think for uh, those who don't have deep data center experience, um, 
if you have an intensely building or growing site, you know, in the case for the example of YouTube and Pandora and Dropbox for these web scale companies where you're moving very quickly, managing the data center really is about keeping operations moving. And I think about anticipating what can go wrong and expecting that just about anything could go wrong and kind of being prepared for it. Uh, I think for, for those of us who were building our data center experience over the last decade or so, um, sometimes we'd be surprised by, you know, kind of the level of things that can happen. You know, certainly it's a small example, but certainly having coffee and not cups seems like like a, a crystallizing example, albeit not one that's as mission critical maybe as some of the other things. Um, but that that in order to keep these things moving, the data centers are very dynamic environments. And if your website demands that you move quickly and consistently, you can really stop if you if you kind of miss any of these. Right. Yeah, I, I had a, you know, as a on a much more serious note, I've had data centers that say, yes, we meet. Um, so so there's a data center standard called the TIA 942. It's basically what all the tier standards uh, derive from. Um, but I've had companies say, yes, we meet all the tier three, which is the idea of any one thing can fail, but the data center keeps running. Um, and I've had data centers, and it also defines things like fiber diversity, et cetera. But I've had locations where they've, um, they've actually said, yes, we meet all the diversity requirements, but the fiber ends up not being diverse. So you end up with you know, one or, in this case, two potential points where the fiber actually crossed itself before making it out to, out to the street. And you know, one bad fiber cut instead of taking down just one path and your site keeps running, you ended up with the exposure of, you know, one bad fiber cut and the entire site could end up um, offline. My my worst example of that was I had a vendor at one point try to tell me on a call that uh, a fiber was diverse because there was transmit and receive. Yeah. We, yeah. we pushed around that. That did not, that did not end up being the end result. Yeah. The, I think the standard is that it should be 20 meters you know, physically separate by the stand is, you know, is what's supposed to be expected. But yeah, I've had, I I've, I had uh, one data center tell me it was diverse, and you walked the path, and yes, it was diverse. It was about four feet diverse. Right, right. So the the likelihood of something uh, causing trouble to one side and not the other becomes pretty low. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so after after uh, Dropbox, uh, I believe you ended up at uh, Netflix as well. Um, do you want to talk about there? I think your role was a little bit different there. Is that right? I did. So after dealing a lot with data centers, I ended up uh, moving to Netflix because I wanted uh, more of a corporate role. Uh, and I ended up going back and uh, working on the corporate network there. And I, we were doing a lot of, uh, a lot of build outs and a lot of expansions. And that was a, that was a pretty fun time. Um, but one of the, the cool things we had there was trying to, you know, trying to erase a lot of the, I guess, the technical debt that had built up over time and uh, trying to kind of figure out what were, what were some of the burning issues and just kind of solve that. So the biggest hurdle we had there was um, a lot of, you know, there was, because the buildings there had grown organically over, like, I guess, like seven or eight years, um, as everyone would move or as cubes would move and things like that, 
um, everyone would kind of go in and just kind of get a desk plugged or you'd get one ethernet port lit up and things like that. And it ended up with a lot of, uh, you know, nobody really knew what was plugged in where or how everything went. So we ended up doing a lot of um, clean up there and doing a lot of like great uh, IDF rework where everybody gets, you know, their desk patches. We ended up adding new switches, new power infrastructure, new out of band to everything so that should one building go down, you could still get to it by dedicated fiber and separate, uh, separate serial and things like that. So that was really cool. Um, and we also ended up uh, rolling that out across all the other locations across the US too, as well as um, new wireless infrastructure and things like that. Cool, and did you feel like many of the concepts from the data center translate well to corporate networking or did you find them you know, pretty different? I mean, obviously there is a difference of having end users directly online and the locations are different, but. It's, there's a lot of things that are really that, so coming from the data center, a lot of things I took for granted weren't there that I ended up incorporating things like, you always have a spare of um, all your common parts. And that really helped because um, in the corporate world, we ended up with a lot of third-party vendors would bring in kind of things that you wouldn't expect to see in like a norm, in a data center, you can control what, you know, all the parts that you see and that, but when, uh, especially in the corporate world, you end up with things like, oh, this one vendor's bringing in a special cable with a different type of fiber connector. And that's, that's great, but if it's really important to us, we'll go and start sparing that. And so we ended up having a lot of spares of everything that could fail, which was really helpful. Uh, one of the things we keep, you know, you run into both in the corporate and the data center world is, Anything that's really important, you should have a spare of because it's usually worth more to have the spare on hand than wait one to two days, ideally if it's in stock or up to six to eight weeks if it's not in stock to have it. So just stocking all the parts is, is great. Um, the best part though is nobody really complains if you want to do a late night maintenance because there's, you know, there is a good time to take a maintenance whereas in the data center world, there's never really a good time to take a, a affecting maintenance. Right, you, you hopefully have enough HA that you can fail over to something and fail back, but that's not always the case if it's something that's more, say, circuit infrastructure or something. Exactly, so yeah, in, in the corporate world, you can actually put up a sign going, this building will be closed on the weekend or on a three-day weekend, and people will accept that, and they'll work from the other building, and you can get away with that, but yeah, not so much in the uh, in the data center world. Yeah, one one thing at least in in data centers, I tended to appreciate over enterprise uh, kind of office locations was generally people knew the path to build circuits into the building. Uh, not always in data centers, but generally that was that was more clear. Where in offices, it felt like uh, for most most of the time when you were lighting things up, there was always a question of where the D marks really were and and, and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we um, when we took over our space in Dropbox, there were the building was a it was a, a relatively well connected building, but there were five different fiber, you know, points where the a vendor could land a circuit, and so trying to figure out where this vendor would land it, eventually just resulting in us building to all possible five different locations, just so that as we ordered different capacity, we would be ready for them. 
We've discussed contracts in the past, Colin, and we touched upon it a little bit earlier, but maybe you want to bring together the things that you think are really important for data center contracts. Sure. So, um, so as I mentioned earlier, the, I think the most important person you really need is, is a good lawyer. Um, the data center contract um, is, can be a very large amount of money. Um, so if you, if you look at like a wholesale contract, let's say it's for about a megawatt, let's say you're paying about $140 per KW, that puts you at roughly about $1.7 million a year for about five years, not including all your escalators, uh, renewals, your power, your PUE, and also all the costs of the hardware you're putting in there. So if something goes wrong, the contract is use your, your only way out. Um, so for me, we had, a, we had a very bad experience. And so now I want to uh, do a few things. So first is I always send out an RFP whenever I'm looking for space. And I, I ask a lot of what I think are basic questions. So I do things like I confirm that there's 24 by 7 technicians, 24 by 7 security, um, that there's shipping and receiving staff and what their hours are, that there's annual maintenance and inspections of, of all the gear. Um, I also ask for confirmation of what the temperature and humidity cooling ranges are, as well as rate of change. Um, and also if I do things like getting meet me room presence, and if my staff are allowed to run cross-connects, and if not, who is allowed to run it, and what's the uh, SLA time around that. Uh, and also if there's costs around running the, the cross-connects. Traditionally in your wholesale data center, cross-connects are usually like, an NRC on, but usually with a no monthly recurring charge, although there's talk of that changing over the past few years. Um, also some of the other things, just make, again, making sure that your rack can always be bought in and bought out and that there's enough clearance, it never needs to be tipped or tilted. Um, as a quick side note, uh, even though most data centers claim to be 2N or N plus one, you'll usually find out that there's only ever one freight elevator. And if that freight elevator does go down, you can be stuck getting equipment in or out for you know, however long it takes to fix it. Um, so back to the context, um, some, of the some of the other things I ask is, if there ever is something like a power outage, even if it's just um, one leg of redundant power on like a two, uh, two power supply server, does that count as an outage? Are there credits for it? And also, you know, do they view it as an outage? I've definitely had data centers where they say, if you don't lose complete power, that's not really an outage. Um, there's also the corollary to that, that if there is an out, if, uh, if they don't count as an outage, then there's no incentive to fix it. And there's no SLA for them to go work on it. So I believe it is an outage. It's something that's not expected. And I expect them to go fix that. So, um, and, and to tie it all together, when, when I do send the RFP, I make it very clear that all the answers in the RFP um, will be, you know, held to be true for the lifetime of the contract. So if they say that there is 24 by seven staff and technicians, then I'm expecting that to look like, look like that all the way through the entire contract. Um, and the most important thing I also add is I, you know, we ended up adding what we called a, 
we well the non-technical term for it was a clown clause which basically said if the data turns out to be you know not well run do we get to walk if they show themselves to be just completely negligent so as an example if if a data center vendor went and walked into my cage and turned off the A feed and then turned off the B feed to my equipment and my power went down with let's say no ticket no maintenance do I get to leave or do I just get like a one day credit or a half a month credit or some something that doesn't say hey this is completely negligent and you should be allowed to leave so we've started to ask for that and we were getting that at a lot of our contracts yeah that's a great point you know again i think uh you know some hearing this list if they're not familiar might think wow that's a lot of kind of detail about things and you know i think with data center some of the things individually when you look at them are going to be unlikely but collectively we know especially if we not only take our own experience but the experience of our peers that we talk to that these things do go wrong in data centers. Odd things happen over time. And you know, I know you were mentioning uh, you know, heating and cooling. I know at one point you had a had a cooling system or a heating system caused some oh, it was a cooling system, I believe, in the data center that caused some some trouble that would have been un, unexpected. So so these things really do come up over time. Yeah, very much so. I had one data center where it wasn't sealed from the outside as much as you would expect. So whenever the uh you know, clouds would roll in, the uh, the humidity in the data center would basically, you know, swing massively, um, completely outside of the rate of change, even though it was, you know, and if we actually had ties where we'd held it to the ASHRAE rate of change, that would have been, you know, that would have been very helpful for us. We, uh, we also had a humidity system at one data center where to add humidity, you're supposed to use filtered water, but the data center was using unfiltered water, and we ended up with a, uh, a white haze over our data center that was basically highly conductive calcium that ended up shorting out a good amount of our gear. Um, so yeah, that was uh, yeah that was not fun, and we ended up having to go and basically our integrator again had helped us with that, and we ended up having to basically clean it all with compressed air, and we still ended up with some some parts were just completely shorted out and non-recoverable. Yeah, the, 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 this kind of business interruption is certainly the last thing that you need when you're kind of moving at, you know, what we used to call internet time, uh, trying, to, trying to keep operations moving. I want to thank our guest, Colin Corbett, for this excellent discussion on data center management and welcome you all to join us for part two of the discussion in our next episode of the CIO Speaks podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of CIO Speaks, please check out the other episodes in this series. Optimizing network interconnection in the changing cloud landscape is the focus of a new report called Connecting Clouds that Steve wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how IT leaders and organizations are overcoming challenges in the evolving cloud era, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future-forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.